BadQuaker.com podcast. My name is Ben Stone. Today is Monday, July 23rd, 2012, and this is podcast number 174. I want to start out the podcast with, uh, with a quick reminder, and if, you've, if you're hearing uh, this podcast, if, <laughs> if you've been listening to the podcast for the last few episodes, uh, you, you, you might be starting to get tired of hearing about this, but... Uh, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, join the Raw Milk Freedom Riders and Lemonade Freedom Day for a picnic in celebration of our freedom of voluntary exchange for the foods of our choice. This is happening Saturday, August 18th, 2012 at noon, 3rd Street Southwest between Maryland and Jefferson near the Capitol Reflecting Pool in Washington, D.C., This is very important. If you are unsure, if you haven't heard the last few podcasts, or if you're unsure what I'm talking about, get uh, get over to badquaker.com, download last Friday's podcast, and uh, listen to Robert Fernandez and my horrible audio that I uh, fouled up so bad. But listen to Robert Fernandez as he explains uh, exactly what's going on and the importance of it. So, um, so yeah, if you haven't heard it, get over to badquaker.com, get last Friday's podcast and listen to that. And, uh, and then if you can at all get to Washington DC on August 18th, on Saturday, August 18th around noon and bring, um, you know, bring a, a picnic lunch or something to share and, uh, be involved in what's going on. And if you can't make it to Washington, DC, then, you know, it, uh, do your part where you can set up a little lemonade stand in front of your house or in a, in a park, you know, uh, it's according to how, how much attention you want to gain, uh, for yourself and for the, uh, for the cause. Uh, I don't suggest to anyone, Hmm, let's put it this way. Anytime you're going to do something that is, uh, you know, activism, you need to weigh the the possible cost. So you know the possible cost of setting up a, a lemonade stand in front of your house. Uh, you should at least have a camera because if the police decide that they do want to do something about it, you need to be able to record it. And it's better if you have more than one person involved, so the one person can deal with the cops and the other person can record it from a distance, from a safe distance and then get the recording away to a safe location because the cops will try to get it. That's, that's become their modus operandi lately. Anyway, um, but, uh, but any time that you do any kind of activism, you need to weigh the cost, and you need to think up front, what is the worst-case scenario that can happen, and am I willing to accept that as, as, uh, as what might happen? If you are not in a condition to accept you know, the consequences of activism, then, then don't take that step. 
you know, support activism in a different way. Uh, send a donation to somebody who does do activism or, you know, write some encouraging words or whatever, whatever you need to do. But if you're not prepared to, you know, accept the fist of the state pounding on you, then don't get involved in activism because it can get pretty deadly, uh, even in the mildest of, uh, of exchanges with the state. It can get uh, unbelievably messy. But if you can, and if you're willing to take the risk, uh, you know, if you can't make it to Washington, D.C., your local town park or your local, you know, uh, whatever, um, if you can get something set up out there and have good camera work so that, so that there's a recording of anything that might come down, do it, you know. Let's, let's put this right in people's face. Uh, we have to have the right to voluntarily exchange food. Um, that, you know, if, if you're thinking, like I've said before, if you're thinking that, uh, oh, you know, they come after my guns, that's the, that's their crossing the line then. Well, if you can't have a free, of, if you don't have the voluntary exchange of food, if you can't do that, your gun means nothing. It's already too late for the gun. Okay. Um, let's break off from that. Now, I want to read something from Frederick Bastiat from The Law, the, from his book, The Law. And, and then I'm going to have to bring this in a way that uh, maybe, huh, I don't know, maybe long-term, long-time listeners are probably going to be fairly comfortable with what I'm about to say. But if you're a new listener uh, to this podcast, you know, I was talking to my wife this morning as I was making the notes for this podcast, and I said, this is going to do one of two things with all my new listeners. This is either going to light a fire right on their t- tails and drive them away, or else it's going to really lock them in as listeners, one or the other, according to the type of, list, of listener that they are. Because what I'm about to tell you is not going to be fun for me to say, and it's not going to be easy for some people to hear. And because of that, I want to read this from Bastiat first, before I, before I get into the body of my, um, of my podcast today. Again, this is Frederick Bastiat from The Law. Socialism, like the ancient ideas from which it springs confuses the distinction between government and society. As a result of this, every time we object to a thing being done by government, the socialists conclude that we object to it being done at all. We disapprove of state education. Then the socialist says that we're opposed to any education. We object to state religion. Then the socialist says that we want no religion at all. We object to a state-enforced equality, then they say that we're against equality, and so on and so on. It's as if the socialists were to accuse us of not wanting persons to eat simply because we do not want the state to raise grain. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because so often I see this argument thrown in my face on the Internet. If I say something... Um, the slightest bit of criticism about something, about, you know, like in what Bastiat is talking about here, uh, the, you know, like the state shouldn't be involved in education. Then all of a sudden the person leaps to the conclusion that, uh, you know, I, I think everyone should be ignorant. Or in one case on the Internet, uh, I was talking about the state shouldn't be involved in marriage. The state has no business involved in any way in marriage. I, you know, I, I st- like, I enjoy mocking 
the the right wing Christian fundamentalists because they're all you know they're all conservative and they pat themselves on the back about how conservative they are and yet they want the government to decide what marriage is. Well, how goofy is that? You don't trust the government. You think the government ought to be shrunk shrunk down and held in control by a constitution, and yet you want to trust the government to define what marriage is. That that's just backwards thinking. One time, uh, and using Bastiat's complaint here. One time on uh, uh, Facebook, I made the statement that if uh, if a person wants to marry, you know, if a man wants to marry three women, a man and a and a goat and a tree, it's none of the government's business. It's simply not the government's business. And this person leaped to the conclusion that I was advocating, uh, you know, evidently they thought I was serious and I was advocating marrying trees and goats. And, and, of course, that's a ridiculous point, and the person clearly is an idiot for thinking something like that. But but what they're doing is they're making this mistake that Bastiat points out that socialists tend to do. I wasn't advocating the marriage of, you know, men with men and three wives and a goat and a tree. That's not what I was advocating. What I was saying is it's simply not the government's business. It's not the government's business. It's, it's the business of the individuals involved. And if people don't want to associate with the guy who's married to the tree, then don't associate with him. But it's still not the government's business. And if you don't believe that a man should marry a, another man and three women and a goat and a tree, if you think that's wrong, then great, think that's wrong. Don't do it. But who, who made you, who gave you the authority to dictate onto somebody else that they can't marry a man, three women, a goat, and a tree. Who who made you God and gave you the power of law to make to to build you up so that you can say this is what marriage is, this is what we're going to accept as marriage, and anything that I don't accept as marriage, everybody else has to reject as well. Who made you God in order to, for you to take that position? As a matter of fact, and I've made this argument before, when mankind takes it upon himself to make law. Mankind kicks out the the natural lawgiver, and who is the lawgiver? Well, it, it's according to if you're a theist or an atheist. If you're a theist, God is the lawgiver. If you're an atheist, then the rules of nature that have created us is the lawgiver. And if man attempts to make himself the lawgiver, then he's going against the natural laws of uh, of God or of the atheist. Man is going against the laws of nature. Man is, and, and when any species goes against the law of nature, he's pretty much guaranteeing his own uh, extinction. So whether you're looking at it from an atheist point of view, the result's going to be extinction, or a, Christ, or a, or a theist point of view, you're, you're violating the, the you're, you're making yourself into a god. When you set yourself up and you start making laws for other human beings, that's exactly what you're doing. Now, you're going to think, okay, so this is going to be about uh, gay marriage or something, right? No, I just use that as an example. That's just one example of how people uh, do exactly what Bastiat said. They hear something, and rather than thinking it through logically and saying, okay, so what is this person really saying? Rather than that... Then they just leap to the conclusion, they leap to the socialist conclusion that you must be saying this. Just because I don't understand what, you, what you're saying, 
you must be saying this. I'll make up a whole straw man over here so that I can uh, uh, have, have what I think you believe and therefore beat it up. Okay, so now I'm going to get into the real meat and potatoes of what I'm talking about. Are you ready for this? Make sure you're sitting down. If you're driving right now, you might want to make sure you're solid in your lane and you're well-established and, and you're not crowded in traffic. Otherwise, otherwise you want, might want to pause this uh, and, and come back to it when you're not in traffic because this could be shocking to some people. Are you ready? Okay, here it is. I warned you. I warned you. Here it is. George W. Bush is at least as much responsible and possibly more responsible for the current growth in libertarian thought than Ron Paul. And I can, I, that's my statement, and I, I'm going to back that up. Ron Paul is just a guy who happened to be there. George Bush was just a guy who happened to be there. But George Bush's actions during his presidency and people like uh, you know Cheney and all the, the, the murderous monsters that surrounded that entire administration, the actions of those people are at least as responsible and perhaps more responsible for the current growth of libertarian thought than Ron Paul. Now, let me explain why. Are you sitting down again? I'm, I'm warning you here. This is not easy to say, and it's even harder to hear if you're a Ron Paul supporter. Imagine you're driving down the road, and you're hungry. And you look around, and you see several fast food restaurants. And what's the decision-making apparatus in your mind that makes you choose which, which fast food restaurant to pull into? Is it because you particularly like one restaurant over the other? You like, uh, you like McDonald's French fries more than Burger King's, but you like the Burger King hamburger more than McDonald's or the other way around? Or, hey, wait, there's a, there's a Subway. Uh, I feel like eating a little lighter. Maybe grab a salad. Whatever the decision-making process that goes on in your mind, as you're driving down the street, and you know, may, here's another thing. This is usually, I, I try to avoid fast food, but, but usually when I uh, am desperate and I have to eat fast food, one of the main things that I look for is who's got the shortest drive through line uh, because I don't want to sit there and, you know, in the drive through any longer than I have to. But that's not always a successful way because oftentimes the one with the shortest drive through line has the worst service and that, therefore none of the locals go there. That's the case here in Springboro. If you drive downtown uh, through Springboro, we have a, a wide variety of fast food restaurants. And you'll see the McDonald's backed up, and you'll see the Burger King backed up, and the Wendy's backed up, and the, and the uh, Taco Bell, and the, and the, you know, all of these restaurants are all backed up in their, uh, their drive-thru. And then you look over, and the, um, uh, oh, what's it called, the Long John Silver's Fish and, Fish and Chips place has no one in their drive-thru. And the reason why? Yeah, because the locals know what kind of service and what kind of food you get there. The same thing goes with the local Arby's. Now, that's, that's not indicative of all Arby's or all Long John Silver's restaurants, but that's how it is in Springboro. The Long John Silver's restaurant, you just, you just avoid it. You just don't go in there. Anyway, so what caused... the? Now you're scratching your head. What does McDonald's have to do with Ron Paul? Well, Ron Paul... In uh, 2008, 2006, 2007, 2008, Ron Paul was the McDonald's with the shortest drive-through line when hunger struck. 
That's exactly what Ron Paul was. It could have been anybody. It could have been Peter Schiff. It could have been Lou Rockwell. It could have been Walter Block. It could have been Gary North. It could have been anybody. But it just so happened that Ron Paul was standing there with the right message at the right time. But there is absolutely nothing magic about Ron Paul. Ron Paul did not create this movement. Ron Paul did not bring more people to liberty. He didn't do that. Ron Paul is just a human being. And there's no magical qualities about him. He's just a regular person. And that's the subject of today's podcast. That's what I'm going to show you, and that's what I'm going to prove. And I'm also going to prove that this idea, that this is called the great man theory. And I've talked about the great man theory before. But this idea that we have this magical Ron Paul before us, and if it weren't for him, we wouldn't have A, B, C, and D. Or if it weren't for him, these things would never have happened. This is just nonsense, and it's a lie of the state. And when you buy this story, when you buy into this storyline, you're, ac- you're actually buying the opposite of the theory of libertarianism. You're actually accepting the lies that the state has created to justify itself when you buy into the idea that Ron Paul is magically delivered to us and that Ron Paul has has invented this uh, this movement and created it and it's all because of him this cult of the personality that surrounds a great the great man this is exactly the opposite of libertarianism and I'm sure if I had if I had the you know, the opportunity to interview Ron Paul, I'm sure Ron Paul would agree with me 100% on what I'm saying right now. This is, this, it's absolutely the opposite of libertarian thought. So now, um, what am I talking about, the great man theory? For, for the newer listeners, you maybe haven't heard my other podcasts on the great man theory. The great man theory, Herbert Spencer has probably... Uh, made the best argument against the great man theory. He had a book in the 1800s called The Study of Sociology. And what I'd like to do is I would like to challenge any listener who questions what I'm saying right now and who questions what I'm talking about, the great man theory, pick up The Study of Sociology. It's a really, it's like, it's less than, I, th- I think it's about 250 pages or so. It's not a big book. And and it, and I'll tell you something else. If you can read the first two paragraphs of the study of sociology and then put it down and walk away from it, um, I don't I don't know I, I don't know how to even finish that sentence uh, because I can't imagine reading the first two paragraphs of of Spencer's the study of sociology and not being pulled into that the rest of that book like like a you know I don't know like. <laughs> It's it just in the first couple paragraphs it will just grab you and you had better just set aside an evening to read this book. But uh, so that's my great praise for Herbert Spencer. But he makes the argument in that better than I ever possibly can. Uh, I'm going to break for a commercial and when I come back I'm going to make my futile attempt to to make my version of Herbert Spencer's argument. And it won't be anywhere near as good as the study of sociology, but I'm going to take my best shot at it, and we'll see if we can get through this. Folks, uh, I'll be right back right after the commercial, so um, hang in there. Folks, I want to talk to you about survival gear bags. Survival gear bags is about more than just great gear bags and survival kits. Check out their website by clicking the banner at badquaker.com. Survival Gear Bags has everything from wise food storage products to tactical equipment to camping supplies to clothing and rain gear to hydration and purification systems to books and DVDs. 
Plus, Survival Gear Bags is known for its service, and it's owned and operated by people who understand and adhere to the zero aggression principle. So get over to Survival Gear Bags and get the stuff you need. Okay, and thank you for sticking with me through the commercial. So I'm talking about the great man theory. And I'm going to talk about why why uh, accepting a great man theory is the opposite of libertarianism. And... Uh, and, I, and again, you know, I'm not Herbert Spencer, and I can't make the kind of logical argument that he made, so I have to just, uh, you know, do the best I can. Going in a completely different direction, perhaps, than what Herbert Spencer, uh, than his point, I like to think about how the state was formed to begin with. What, what con job, what, what lie was told to people to justify inventing the state to lord and dominate over them what you know what 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 went into the original con now, i've talked before several times about cons and how cons work and how cons uh you know the right person the right mark uh the the con artist will look for the right person the right mark and not everybody can be conned it takes, uh, you know, it takes certain characteristics that will set you up perfect for different different cons require different marks. But either way, um, the individual being conned, you you look for specific attributes, uh, and, and then you try to match the con to that to whatever the the mark's uh, weaknesses are. Well, if we look at how the state was formed, and we look at the very original. Uh, con that was given to the states or given to people in order to justify the existence of the state, then we begin to see some patterns setting up. If you think about the original, you know, I've talked before about Jericho being the the oldest um, the oldest form of the state that we actually have evidence of, and and someday there may be we we the, the you know archaeologists are digging everywhere all the time. They may come up with an older version of the state than Jericho. So, so my theories are not, uh, you know, just set on that one, uh, one archaeological dig. Uh, the, these theories should be adjustable in case that at some point in the future uh, a different dig is found somewhere else where, uh, you know, an older uh, form of the state is found somewhere else. But either way... Uh, one of the one of the things that you absolutely have to have in this early state forming process, when the con is very first sold on non state people, you have to have the hero god. You have to have this myth of a hero god. And in the case of um, um, Jericho, we have the Tammuz god or the Damuz god. Uh, other variations of the of the Tammuz god were like Nimrod and Hercules. Um, Hercules, among the Greeks, the Hercules myth was really popular. And then, you know, the Greeks had a tendency, they would tell a particular myth over and over and over. And then after a few generations, they would kind of like, um, they would get tired of that myth. But they would take the same myth and just attribute it to a different god. They would either make up a new god or just pick out one of their other gods and and uh, and begin attributing the same stories to that other god. There might be some you know some variations to the stories, but the ov overall myth uh, would remain consistent. So, for example, a lot of the of the uh, 
uh, Greeks liked the Hercules myth, but others preferred Adonis. And so, you know, you had the Hercules myth. Maybe that was more like a maybe that was more for the guys, more the you know the macho rough and tumble type uh, liked the Hercules version of it. Whereas Adonis was more, you know, that was more like. Uh, you know, like nowadays, the 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 young girls like the the um, uh, what's it called, the Twilight series. You know, maybe Adonis was more like the Twilight version, where Hercules was more like maybe, um, you know, I don't know, <laughs> the Wolfman or something. Um, so, uh, so it, really, we're talking about the same hero god. Um, whether whether or not the whether or not the the hearer is uh, more comfortable hearing the Adonis version or the Hercules version, or whether it's uh, you know told as being Nimrod or whether it's Tammuz. Nimrod was the great hunter, the great hunter uh, god, or well, he was like half man, half god, as all of these are in their in their myth. Um, but uh, Nimrod was the renowned hunter that uh, ended up uh, founding so many cities long after he was gone. The, the you know what actually happened of course was that the myth of Nimrod was used to justify the the so-called founding fathers of a particular city-state. We had a little baggy interruption there. She decided to jump on the microphone. Anyway, um, so so whether we're talking about Tamils being uh, you know he was the god of certain kinds of food. And, you know, then the, with the state began the overproduction of grain. And it just so happens that Tamils, who used to be the shepherd god, now becomes the god of grain. And, and you know, either way, the founding fathers of the, which, you know, were really just a gang of thieves that happened to be fortified in one particular location. They use this myth of the, of the hero god to justify themselves and to justify why they get to come out and take part of your uh, of of your farm's production, you know taxes, um, because they are blessed by because they are a descendant of Tammuz or Nimrod or Hercules or Adonis or Osiris or uh, Baal or Baal, however you want to pronounce it, um, or or Malquet, uh, the Phoenician god, and I'm probably mispronouncing him too. Mal Malk, I think it's more like Milk Milkwort or Malquort. I think it's Malquort was the Phoenician god. Um, Liber, uh, later on for the Romans, Liber. Uh, Herodias, in, in the histories, Herodias tells us, you know, he, he went to different places and he kept finding these Hercules temples in different places. And they worshipped Hercules by different names in different places. And so he would talk to the locals there and he would say, you know, uh, how is it that you know about Hercules? And they're like, he founded our city. Well, how could he have found? How could Hercules have founded this city way over here, and that city way over there? You know, um, there's a maintenance problem here. How could he be in two places at the same time founding a city? Well, the reason why is because he didn't. Um, people claiming to be his descendants used him as the excuse to be lord over a small group of, you know. Uh, farmers that they had that they were domina- dominating that they were uh, you know extracting tax from and so these different you know whether we're talking about any of the ancient city states they were all formed based on this hero god uh this great man that was you know somehow tied back to the founding fathers of their of their city now once 
this, you know, once the established cities were there, and it was a little hard to, geographically speaking, a lot of the land was being taken up because the cities had expanded out and their influence had gotten larger and larger, and empires were beginning to get built. When, when these days came upon humanity, a new thing was needed. The old, uh, well, I'm a descendant of Hercules, that didn't, that didn't work so good anymore because these old myths were already starting to wear a little thin on mankind and holes were beginning to form in, you know, in, the, uh, in their myth building. So along came a guy named Alexander. And Alexander was able to become the great man without claiming anything from his father, without claiming that he was a descendant of any... Uh, oddly enough, he actually did claim he was a descendant of, of the gods. But, uh, you know, uh, but beyond that, um, Alexander uh, was maybe the first really big uh, great man uh, that, that actually took it on himself instead of trying to associate himself with something, you know, older. Uh, he actually allowed the 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 cult the personality cult to develop purely around himself and he and he just loved it he 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 built his entire empire on it um he you know the level of fear of him that his enemies had and of his uh, of his own people the you know his own people feared him because uh you know history is not always exactly what we read a a guy who is born into the kingdom the way Alexander was, with his father being the brutal king that he was, and um, and he uh, being trained from the youngest ages to be a brutal uh, ruler exactly like his father. Um, you know, history doesn't necessarily tell us what a what an evil, brutal monster Alexander was. You have to kind of read between the lines to figure it out. But either way. The era of men, if you could put it that way, began with Alexander, where men became the great man, rather than some ancient myth, some some hero god that had to, uh, you know, like one of the common roots between Tammuz, Nimrod, Hercules, Adonis, Osiris, Baal, uh, all of these, their death, well, let's not go that direction. Let's not go... Yeah, let's not go that direction. Let's just go with what I've already said, that the era of the, of the hero god became less useful for the state myth, and the era of men had begun with Alexander. And so we have personalities like Alexander, Hamel, uh, Hannibal, Caesar, Charlemagne. These were leaders that stood up, and, uh, and we can look at them uh, and, and adopt the great man theory that these guys changed history. These guys were magical. Somehow Alexander was not like anybody else. Somehow Hannibal, you know, uh, even Hannibal's enemies um, looked at him in, in such a light that, uh, you know, the, the Rome itself utilized the myth of how scary Hannibal was to keep its own people uh, in in check, even to the point of where... where when Hannibal was finally caught, it's very much like when uh, Sitting Bull was caught, actually. Uh, Hannibal had been living peaceably for a long time and had been completely you know, out of the business of being a great leader and a, and a great warrior. And he's just trying to live his own life, and he was hunted down and found and murdered. 
And then, you know, now he says, okay, so you're going to kill me now. So now Rome can finally sleep, right? And that's kind of the way it was with Sitting Bull. You know, sitting the very existence of Sitting Bull, even though he was retired, so to speak, he is just a quiet old man living in his cabin, not bringing any harm to anyone, not threatening anyone, not, not making any kind of statements to uh, incite rebellion or anything. And yet the fascination with this great man was so much that he had to be killed. He couldn't be, you couldn't allow him to live uh, because he, his very existence was a threat to, uh, to the new great man um, in Washington, D.C. That they, that they were adopting, see? So they had to kill Sitting Bull because of this. His own people had to kill him. And the same way with Hannibal. Caesar, you know, you can make this argument with Caesar, too. And now you start to come back to, hey, how did Alexander die? Is this so much different than Tammuz, Nimrod, Hercules, Adonis, Osiris? The killing of the great man, is that, uh, you know, Caesar, that's basically what they did. They, they, um, uh, they made a god out of him by killing him. Now, Charlemagne didn't quite face that aspect of the, of the great man <laughs> process. Uh, he was able to live his life and, and die an old man. But, but still, you have this idea that this great man was unusual. He was different than anybody else. Nobody else could have been Charlemagne because he was Charles the Great. He was Charlemagne. Nobody could be like him. He was greater than the Pope. As a matter of fact, uh, okay, well, let's not go in that direction. Let's go on to the era of the church and the era of popes and kings. The era of, of men wasn't enough. The, uh, throughout the, the Middle Ages, the, the church took the position of deciding. You know, so now we had great popes and great kings, but they were all heroes that came to us by the hand of God. You see, this was the, this was the new era that came in after Charlemagne, the, the era of the church. And all the great men were either popes or great kings that were blessed by popes. And these were uh, the, the very acts of these kings and popes were the acts of God. And then that story got a little old and got a little thin and got a little stretched to the point of where um, people weren't buying it anymore. Especially after the invention of the printing press, when information could get out and people could find out how, how poorly put together this whole uh, series of lies were. This whole, um, the whole web of lies that propped it up popes and kings during the Middle Ages. And these crazy ideas that somehow God had placed these, these men over regular everyday people, with the, with the spreading of information from the printing press, the story just didn't hold up the way that it had in previous generations. So now we needed a new great man theory um, for a new generation of state lovers. So enter the era of the state. We have sometime in the late 1600s, early 1700s, we have a shift. And no longer is it the great popes and the great kings. No longer are we, are we clamoring after Charlemagne or Caesar or the Hannibal of our day. We're looking towards other founding fathers, like the magical Ben Franklin, who, who you know, even within his day, um, he was attributed with things that... that that even he laughed at sometimes. But 
but in order to build the state, men needed to believe in these magical founding fathers. And so guys like, you know, Jefferson, Adams, uh, you know, John Adams was not a good guy. Sam Adams was, uh, you know, he was a thug. He was basically a thug. And without going into all these guys and p- picking each one apart and going into, you know, all of their flaws and everything, just get the bigger idea that these so-called founding fathers, it was just an extension of this great man theory it, that that is simply a justification for the state. The idea that this small group of men are somehow blessed with some sort, some kind of magical capabilities that the rest of us are not. Now, when that's that's the basis of the state right there. Now, when this worked its way over to the French, um, you know, after the American. Uh, um, so-called revolution. It really wasn't a revolution because we didn't attack London and try to, you know, take over Parliament or anything. The the United the the the, the colonists didn't do that. So it's not really a revolution. But um, it was really just a you know a separation. But either way, in the War of Independence, the American War of Independence, uh, that sparked something in the hearts of the French. And of course, the French mistranslated the whole thing and got it all wrong. But they had a whole series of great men that tried to stand up around the time of the French Revolution. And all these, you know, attempts at great men were failures because the French would right away see, the, the people themselves would see right away the, the failures of their latest great man. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, through the French Revolution, what they tended to do was when a great man would fall, they'd drag him up and hack off his head. Um... Uh, you know, as much as I say the French didn't get it, maybe they were closer than they realized. But um, but then eventually, they, you know, they fell back, went back to their king, and then Napoleon rose up, and, then, and now they finally had a great man. Napoleon is often cited as an example of a great man. And um, in Germany, you know, the Germans had Bismarck. The Americans were then, uh, around the same time as Bismarck, the Americans uh, uh, deified Abraham Lincoln, um, who, I might add, suffered and died for us in the tradition of Tammuz and Hercules and others. And yet, you still, as you watch these great men, and you say, well, it sounds like Ben is actually making an argument that this great man theory has substance to it. No, no, none of these so-called great men were any different than any of the other people of their day. They were simply opportunists. They were, they were the embodiment of what people desired to have. Napoleon was Napoleon and did the things that he did simply because of the myth that surrounded Napoleon. People, people desired to have a great man. And that desire for a great man was a failure in the case of Robespierre or some of the others. But in the case of Napoleon, it, it worked. And it didn't work because Napoleon was so spectacularly different than anybody else that had tried it. It worked because all of the whole environment, the whole setting in France, was finally ready for a Napoleon. And if it wouldn't have been Napoleon Bonaparte, it could have been, you know, Leon Napoleon or whatever. It doesn't matter. The actual person is not the point. 
The point is that the people themselves had created the desire for a great man. And the, and the guy that actually wore the shoes and became that great man, there was nothing about him that was unique. Absolutely nothing. Okay, I'm going to break again. I'm going to be right back, and we're going to pick this back up and maybe bring it all together. Folks, have you seen the silver and gold trading cards from Shire Silver? You have to check these out. They're specific weights of real silver or gold laminated inside trading cards, and they're a great way to show the world a better way to save, spend, and share precious metals. And now you can buy them using bitcoins or Federal Reserve notes. Folks, you really need to check this out. Go over to Shire Silver, watch the video on the main page, check out the list of merchants that accept silver and gold trading cards, and you can even learn how you can get paid to help spread the word about Shire Silver trading cards. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. Now, um, in, our, in our slide through the history of uh, great men here, um, I left off talking about um, Napoleon and uh, others right after him, of course, Bismarck in Germany and Lincoln in, in the U.S., and others as well, you know, uh, there were, but, but those really stood out in their day. Uh, the, you know, the, the Germans could ignore the horrible, brutal things that Bismarck did. They could ignore him lying. They could ignore him, you know, leading Germans into unnecessary war. They could ignore all of those things. They could ignore, the Germans could ignore the oppression that Bismarck brought on them, causing wave after wave of Germans to leave Germany and, and move to the U.S. They could ignore that and deify Bismarck um, because they had to. Not because Bismarck had any particular magical characteristics or traits any more than any other con man or thief. Uh, if, if you're going to accept that, that the... That the um, that the great man really is a great man, then any other successful thief you have to you have to place um, you know any any other uh, you know a, a mafia don or anybody else who has really uh, had success in being a thug and a thief and pushing people around because that's that's the characteristics of all these people that I've named in this so far. And in the case, of course, of Abraham Lincoln, here's a guy who is personally responsible for the death of more Americans than any other individual. And it was entirely avoidable. Um, if, you're not, if you're not sure what I'm talking about with that, you know, um, there's a bunch of good material uh, on Lincoln and on how nothing that he was doing, the so-called Civil War, all of that had nothing to do with freeing slaves or anything like that. Lincoln was a horrible racist. It was all about power. Lincoln gaining power, dominating over the South, taking the wealth of the South, giving it to his uh, his sponsors in the banking, timber, and railroad industries. That's who Lincoln was owned and controlled by. So, so But when Lincoln was killed, Lincoln became this martyr that the U.S., now we have our Tamuls, now we have our Nimrod, we have our Hercules. And they could, and Americans could rally behind him and make him a throne and set him on it for all eternity. And that's what they did with Lincoln. Um, later, along came Teddy Roosevelt, the great hunter, a true American Nimrod. Again, Nimrod was the, was the half-man, half-god hunter that uh, so impressed the, uh, the antiquities. Well, that was our Teddy Roosevelt. He, in, in any other circumstances, and this is going by things that have been written about Teddy Roosevelt from his contemporaries and even his grandson, um, Teddy Roosevelt was a nut. 
and there's it's really hard to describe him as anything other than a very insane person, very dangerous person. But that's who tends uh, towards these um, these positions like this. And again, we can go into the 20th century. We can talk. Okay, well, let's let's look at one other thing. The Russians did not have a great man. They had these these uh, anemic heirs of the Romanov family. Uh, and and you know a great land is needs a great uh, a great leader they thought and so Lenin and Stalin you know one after the other came in and, and fit that mo- that mold they were able to give the the uh, Russian people the great man that they needed but if it wouldn't have been for Lenin if it wouldn't have been for Stalin it would have been somebody else because the environment was what was was what was creating it, it there was a market for a Stalin. Otherwise, there never would have been a Stalin. There was a market for Lenin. Otherwise, there never would have been a Lenin. A Lenin just would have, uh, you know, gone on doing the things that he was doing, trying to make a living beforehand. If there was no market for Lenin, there would have been no Lenin. And you can use the same example with FDR in the U.S., Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, and guess what? Now we're back to Bush. And Bush has given us Ron Paul. Now, how did Bush give us Ron Paul? Well, in many ways, the oppression that George W. Bush put on the American people after the tragedies uh, that happened in September 11th of 2001, the oppression that George Bush put on the American people directly resulted in a backlash of people wanting liberty. We saw the failures of government on 9-11. We saw how badly... The government failed to do the basic thing that it's supposed to do, and that's protect people. It, it didn't do that. Well, of course it didn't do that. It doesn't really ever, ever do that. So now let's take a look at this great man idea more specifically, because a lot of good, a lot of smart people have fallen for the great man theory. Uh, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Hegel, all these guys fell for the lie, but there's somebody who didn't. Again, Herbert Spencer did not buy this story. Um, think of it this way. The great man uh, is like a central government. It, it's, it's be- believing in the great man is like believing that things can be centrally planned or centrally controlled or centrally run. Like one man or one small group of men um, need to be in charge of everything. So the great man theory is literally the same theory as a centralized government. Whereas a free and independent individual doesn't need a great man. Uh, just like a free and independent market doesn't need a market planner or a controller of the market. So then the great man theory supports central planning and centralized government, socialism. But the free and independent individual desires a free and independent market, not controlled by any kind of central authority. I have no leader because no one has a special connection to the mysteries of the universe. No one has some kind of better connection to, to God or to the purpose of the universe or whatever. No one has a better connection to it than me or no one has a better connection than you. You don't need a leader because there's no one that's any more special than I am or than you are. Uh, let's take this to the atheist theist argument for a second and just think about it um, think about it this way let's look at the atheist first for the atheist to accept the great man theory 
is accepting the idea that there's some kind of a guiding God who drops these people into history from time to time to bump history in the direction that he wants. Well, of course, that's against everything that the, theor- that the atheist would believe. So a logical atheist, a consistent atheist, cannot accept the great man theory because the great man theory itself depends upon a God guiding history. Now, remember, atheists that are listening, that are objecting to what I'm saying right now, remember, Herbert Spencer was writing about natural selection and evolution before Darwin had the guts to breach the topic in polite society. Herbert Spencer was writing about it and talking about it before Darwin ever publicly talked about it. Now, let's look at a different direction. Let's look at the theist version of the same argument. To accept a great man is to accept a guiding God, a God that's guiding history. But but who is this God that's guiding history by use of these great men? A guiding God who created special leaders, all of which, you know, all those ones I just named, they were all heads of state or great generals with powerful armies. So a guiding God who would create special leaders, all of whom were either heads of state or powerful generals, that same guiding God, if we believe in him, gave us Hitler and Stalin and and the murderer Lincoln and Attila the Hun and Nero. Is that who we believe in? Is that a God that is worthy of our love and devotion? Should we believe that a God, that there's some kind of God out there who would say, yeah, you know, here's a good idea. Let's just create this little mustachioed German guy and have him kill a bunch of people. Or let's just create this this um, tiny little egotistical uh, Russian Stalin who, you know, I didn't even realize how short Stalin was until I was reading about him recently. He was only like uh, five, I think he was like five, four or something like that. I didn't realize he was that small. Uh, you know, and I'm not saying anything against people that are not tall. I'm just saying that uh, every impression I ever got of Stalin was that he was a huge man until I found out that he was actually not, but that he would kill um, artists who would draw him uh, realistically, so to speak. Anyway, so do we believe that there's a God guiding history by giving us these these heads of state and these generals? Are, are we going to cherry pick and say, well, this God gave us um, this great leader, this one that we like, this, uh, this Abraham Lincoln, well, no, this, um, <laughs> this George Washington or this Thomas Jefferson. This guiding God gave us a Thomas Jefferson. But somehow Nero slipped in past that God. Does that make sense? If you're picking out great men that you're going to deify and then picking out other great men that you're going to say, well, that guy slipped in somehow. I'm not sure how he did that. That's the very definition of cherry picking. That's, it's an illogical, uh, it's, a, it's a fallacy in a, in a logical argument. You, you can't cherry pick. If you're going to accept the great men, then you have to say that the same great man process that gave you uh, Thomas Jefferson gave you Attila the Hun, Nero, Stalin, Hitler, Lincoln. It's the same process. You can't cherry-pick logically. So now, if you raise Ron Paul as your great man, 
and you say that he has birthed this movement or he has brought in all this, he has done all these great things for liberty, then logic dictates that you accept the deistic qualities of the other great men as well. You can't cherry pick. You can't say God gave us Ron Paul. Ron Paul is the magical man who the, the movement wouldn't be where it's at without Ron Paul. You can't make that distinction logically and cherry pick him out without accepting the, the, the great man theory that, that puts Hitler and Stalin and Attila the Hun and Nero right in there with him. You have to be consistent about these things. So the great man, in all the cases that you think of who is the great man of each generation, these, these were uh, not Ron Paul right now because he is not the head of state and he will not be the head of state, but that's what so many people wanted. That's exactly what, they, what the Ron Paul followers wanted him to become head of state, to make the great man of him. So what is the great man? The great man is the lawgiver. He's the head of state. The great man is the lawgiver. When you take a human being and you, and you exalt that human being and you place him on the throne as your master, as your deity, you deny your own maker. Let me ask you, what is the source of law? According to the great man theory, the great man is the source of law. We, we make him the lawgiver. It's his will, it's his words that are law. So when you accept the great man, you accept the great man as the lawgiver. You place him on the throne. You make him your deity, and you deny your own maker. Whatever you might believe, whether you're an atheist or a theist, or whatever, you, however you imagine that we got to where we are, that we are who we are, and whatever process that you believe got us to that point, when you accept the great man theory, you accept the great man as the lawgiver. You exalt him into that position, place him on the throne, and, and you make him your God. You make him the source of law. But what I'm asking you to do is to deny the great man and embrace the wonders of the market. The individuals making choices, driving innovation and creating the future. Humans do not need a great man. The great man has only existed because there was a desire within people to have a great man. And if, and if Ron Paul wasn't there, if, there was, if, if some horrible tragedy would have taken place in the 60s and Ron Paul would have been killed in Vietnam, and I, you know that's a horrible thing to even think, but had that happened, there would have been a different Ron Paul and he would not have been a great man. He just would have had to be, happened to have been in the right place at the right time saying the right things. And again, that could have been Peter Schiff, it could have been Lou Rockwell, it could have been uh, you know, Walter Block, it could have been anybody, because there's nothing magical about Ron Paul. And again, to be consistent, if you believe there's something magic about Ron Paul, then you're wandering into the great man theory, and you're literally kicking God off the throne and placing your own God there. You're making a God out of a man, even if you're an atheist. That's what you're doing. Individuals making choices, that drives the market, that drives innovation, and that creates the future. And when human beings realize that they don't need a great man, when that, when that f fully, when, when human beings fully become aware of the fact that they don't need a great man, and that the great man is simply a lie that is used to, to, con people into accepting the existence of the state. 
That's all the great man theory is. There are no great men. There is no one human being that has the authority to write laws for the rest of us. It just doesn't exist. There is no natural authority for that to take place. And there never has been. It has always been a con since the very first since the since the very first thieves in Jericho or wherever it happened built up this lie and began selling it to, to people to justify their thievery and their and their thuggery. Since that myth first appeared in humanity, it has been nothing but a lie. And at some point, humans, it's my sincere belief, will realize that this whole idea of the state, of the great man, that this idea that some people are somehow divinely better than the rest of us, at some time, it's my sincere belief that humanity will outgrow the silly childish myth and they will embrace the market and freedom and liberty and they will understand that we don't need the state we don't need the great man protecting us and telling us how to live our lives and controlling us we don't need it libertarians of every sort you need to cut the cord you need to break away from all these myths that are holding the libertarian movement back. I like Ron Paul. It's like Bastiat was talking about there. You're you're thinking that I that I'm saying these things because I hate Ron Paul or I don't you know I reject Ron Paul or whatever. It's exactly the opposite. I'm not saying uh, Ron Paul is bad or any of these things. What I'm saying is embracing Ron Paul as your great man is no different than embracing you know George W. Bush as your great man or, uh, you know, Stalin, or Lincoln, or Nero, or anyone else. You have to reject this idea that one human being is special, and that other, all other human beings are somehow subservient. And when you embrace the idea that we are all, every one of us is individuals, we, we are just as important as any other individual. And you are just as important to the liberty movement as Ron Paul is, or as anybody else. And then you break free from this, this crazy myth of the state, and then you can realize, yeah, you know, we can still have leaders. There are natural leaders. Leaders are natural to human species. Great men are not. Great men are a creation that has held us back and has kept us from moving on towards whatever it is in our future, whatever the market is going to bring us. Whatever the future holds, it will be brought to us by the desires and the market, of, the desires of humankind, and and that and the market is that the market is the collection of all the things that the human beings desire. It's all in the market, and the market figures out a way to fill all those needs as we have them. That's the wonders of the market. The great man can't do those things. Only the wonders of all human beings together doing stuff free by free choice not through some forced collective but all the individuals all making those many 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 choices driving innovation and creating the future folks for more on liberty the zero aggression principle and property rights go to badquaker.com and thank you very much for listening anarchy radio